Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of the Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. Now that the economy is coming back after the pandemic, many companies are starting to hire again, and some have a special requirement before coming on board, a COVID-19 vaccine. Employers are starting to mandate candidates get a shot before they get hired and are also applying the rule to existing employees also. Certain exemptions can be made, but generally, it's legal for employers to mandate such vaccinations. For more on how employers across all industries are beginning to require these, we'll speak to Chip Cutter, workplace reporter at The Wall Street Journal. For months, we've seen employers tell their staffers that they'd like them to get the vaccine. And we've seen CEOs and others kind of talk about the importance of the vaccine, why people might want to consider it. Now, with the vaccine being rolled out to all Americans and with half of U.S. adults having gotten their first dose, many companies say they want to move beyond recommendations to mandates. And that's what we're beginning to see here. And it's in all sorts of industries from food service. So, for example, the Michelin-starred restaurant 11 Madison Park has been advertising some jobs recently where it says a COVID-19 vaccine is going to be required to, you know, office jobs. We've seen jobs for accountants in Colorado or people to work in administrative capacities in Houston. All of those, you know, are be- companies are beginning to say that to work here, a vaccine is going to be required. Yeah. And that's the, you know, the interesting part, uh, you know, you mentioned all the industries, hospital networks, meatpacking plants. Also, you noted in your article, And that's the important thing. When you start seeing different industries that are requiring this, you know that's something that's going to take off. You know that more companies are going to feel comfortable requiring it. And you as an employee, you're going to, in a lot of cases, you're going to have to comply or or just go somewhere else. So one of the big questions on this is, is it legal? Because the, the vaccine itself is not mandated by the government or anything like that. So is it legal? And for the most part, the answer is yes. That, that That's right. Companies can legally require vaccines as a condition of employment, uh, though they must accommodate religious beliefs or medical conditions that might prevent workers from getting the shots. Um, what gets complicated here, though, is that many companies that have done this say they have received blowback both within their organizations and outside of it. And I think that is what has caused many companies to take a pause here. And so even if executives would like to put these kind of requirements in place, many say that they worry that there perhaps could be you know, blowback, resistance from staffers. I, I talked to some employers that have put these requirements in place and they've seen employees quit. They've gotten emails to you know, their staff, to their executives saying they're frustrated by this. So um, you know, this is not without controversy. Yeah, tell me a little bit more about some of those conversations, because uh, one of them, I think you were speaking to a raw plastics distributor, uh, Lastique International Corp. And they said that, uh, you know, they had some people leave because of it. Uh, But even when they're going through their interview process for new employees, they ask them, have you gotten the vaccine? Are you planning to? And if they say no or something, they're saying, well, you know, the interview's over. You know, we we don't need you at this point. It's nothing against you. That's just kind of a requirement. I thought that was a really telling, interesting anecdote. So this is a company that's kind of, you could say, almost in the manufacturing space, right? I mean, it's it's a place where they're hiring machine operators, for example. And the company uh, says it pays well for its area. I think, you know, starting wages start around $15 an hour. 
The HR director there, though, you know, is, is kind of implementing a policy that the owner wanted to put in place, which was to say that everyone, both existing employees and new hires, will need the vaccine. And so she says when she starts interviewing candidates, she doesn't want to get down a path where she has a great conversation with them. But then at the end, they say they're not willing to get a COVID vaccine. She said that would waste everyone's time. And so that's why she and her colleagues now start conversations by asking that right up front. Will you get the vaccine? Have you already had it or are you willing to do so? Um, and she says most people are agreeable and willing to do it. But she's had a couple that said that it's just not for them. And then the conversation ends. And and I think that that's just an approach uh, that, that perhaps you know, others may follow. Um, and I think, you know, trying to kind of set those expectations up front. It's one reason why we've seen these kind of mandates spelled out in job postings. Uh, you know, in the story, we note that, you know, some companies and some organizations are spelling this out in big, bold lettering, you know, COVID-19 vaccine required. Uh, you know, these organizations don't want any ambiguity, you know, kind of ambiguity here. On one front, I think it's pretty important, right? I mean, in most workplaces right now, everybody still has to wear a mask, right? So you talk about let's get back to normal, things like that. I know they can be cumbersome sometimes, but if not everybody in the workplace is vaccinated, that might be a rule, a restriction that needs to stick around for a longer period of time. You can't get back to that normalcy. So in a sense, you got to do one or the other kind of thing, and you're still going to be restricted in some form or another. So, I mean, these are difficult questions that the managers, employers have to walk through. And some of them are, you know, going that extra step, bringing vaccination drives to them, you know, organizing it so that the access to the vaccine is easier for their employees or future employees even. That's exactly it. And and we've seen a number of companies kind of give incentives to employees, say, we'll give you a couple hundred dollars, for example, if you get the vaccine, or we'll give you time off to get the vaccine and recover from any possible side effects. But some companies are going farther and just bringing those vaccines on site. We cite in the story example of this, you know, kind of beloved Texas restaurant and, uh, and you know, this, this restaurant in Houston called Ninfas, and there's a couple others where they just had all their staff, you know, they brought, they say vaccines are going to be required, but we're going to have a vaccine drive so everybody can kind of get vaccinated at once. Um, and I think that that was seen as kind of a way to kind of ease this process to make it as simple as possible for everyone. But you rightly point out that, you know, obviously the vaccine is, is the big help in keeping everybody safe, but there are, of course, still risks. And I think that's why, you know, many organizations continue to kind of have other safeguards in place, too. Yeah, if your employer meets you halfway and tries to do these vaccination drives, I'm sure a lot are willing to do it. And I, that was an early discussion at my workplace, and everybody right away was saying, yeah, I'll get it right away if you can help us do it, because the early parts of the vaccine rollout were tough with the getting your appointments and all that stuff. But you're going to start seeing this a lot more. You're going to hear about this a lot more as uh, people do start getting back to work more regularly. So we'll keep an eye out on all of that. Chip Cutter, workplace reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. This week, we also heard that the Supreme Court will be hearing a major Second Amendment case that could impact gun laws for years to come. They will be hearing a case out of New York in the next term that has to do with the law restricting the ability to carry concealed handguns in public. For more on what to know about this case and how the conservative majority in the court may impact this decision, we'll speak to Ian Milheiser, senior correspondent at Vox. This is a big, big case. I mean, this is the biggest guns case probably to hit the Supreme Court since 2008 and potentially be the second biggest guns case in the court's history. So to lay out some of that history real quick before I get into this specific case, the Second Amendment, as many of your listeners probably know, starts with the phrase, a well-regulated militia. It says a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms should not be infringed. 
And the way that the Supreme Court interpreted that amendment, literally up until 2008, is they really took that first passage about a well-regulated militia seriously. They said the purpose of this amendment is to protect people's ability to join militias. It's not really about the individual right to bear arms. And then in 2008, the Supreme Court handed down this case called D.C. v. Heller. And Heller was the first time in American history that the Supreme Court said, no, this is about an individual right to bear arms. And it's specifically about the right of individuals to self But Heller was riddled with caveats. It said that dangerous and unusual weapons can still be banned. It said that there could be bans on the use of felons and people with mental illnesses carrying firearms. It said there could be bans on guns in what it called sensitive places. And so, like, it said there's an individual right to bear arms, but it didn't tell you that much about what the scope of the Second Amendment was. And it did say that there were some pretty hefty limits on it. Flash forward to now, and the Supreme Court is just much, much, much more conservative. The lower courts have figured out a framework, a fairly moderate framework to deal with Heller that strikes down laws like you try to ban guns in the home, those sorts of laws will strike down. But that actually tends to uphold most state gun laws. And there has been a dissenting faction amongst the lower court judges that want to move gun on the, the interpretation of the Second Amendment much further to the right. One member of that dissenting faction was Brett Kavanaugh. Another member of that dissenting faction was Amy Coney Barrett. And so what is likely to happen here is that a lot of the caveats from the Heller decision are going to are probably going to be wiped out. And you could potentially have more than a decade of lower court decisions saying that most gun laws will be upheld, also struck down, and we could have a whole new world where there's much more access to firearms. So what are we seeing in the New York case specifically? It seems something similar to what we have here in California where I'm at. And this is all having to do with obtaining your license to have a concealed firearm, basically, a handgun. Basically, you, you have to prove that you actually need it. As you mentioned earlier, kind of the thing, let's say you're a, a store, a liquor store owner or something, you need it for protection. That might be a case for it. Or you have a known stalker, you might need that for protection. But just blanket, everybody can't have a concealed carry gun and these types of permits. So that's kind of where this New York case is lying on. So in New York, I mean, this law has been around for more than a century. The specific phrase that the law uses is proper cause. You have to show that you have proper cause in order to obtain a concealed carry permit in New York. And that's the permit that allows you to bring a gun outside the home for a variety of purposes. And so there's lots of ways you can show proper cause. I mean, like you said, if you're a shop owner, you can sometimes obtain a gun to protect you in your shop. Although generally that will be a limited permit saying that you have to keep the gun in the shop. A lot of guns are issued to bank messengers, you know, people who like bring money back and forth between banks. And there's like obvious reasons why those people want to carry a gun to protect themselves when they're doing their job. When they're not doing their job, it's often a limited use permit. It's very hard in New York to get an unlimited concealed carry permit. I mean, if someone has a stalker, they probably could because you never know when the stalker stalker is going to show up. But you have to show that you have a very particular need and that need has to go beyond the concerns of the general public. You can't gain a concealed carry permit in New York simply by saying, well, 
I fear that someday I might be a victim of violence. I'd like to have a gun when I do. That's not enough. And so essentially what the plaintiffs are asking for in this case is they are claiming that they have a constitutional right to just be able to say, well, I think I might someday want a gun and that should be enough. The court's not going to hear this until their next term. I think that starts in October or something like that. So this conversation will be talked about for some time until we start getting that underway. So that you're going to hear a lot of conversations about that coming from the administration. Obviously, as I mentioned, they're trying to reform gun laws and put uh, restrictions around the country. And then from the other side, you know, uh, just wanting to expand those gun rights. So it's going to be a huge conversation and something that could be very impactful for many years to come. Ian Milheiser, senior correspondent at Vox. Thank you very much for joining us. All right. Thank you. Finally, for this week, the recall election to remove California Governor Gavin Newsom is on. Proponents of the recall have submitted enough signatures to put the recall on the ballot. No date has been set yet, but the vote may come by November. Now we have to see how many people will jump in the race to replace him and how does the state change over the course of the next few months. For more on how the recall circus is back in California, we'll speak to Taryn Luna, reporter at the LA Times. We learned from the Secretary of State that the proponents had met and exceeded the minimum threshold to qualify. So as you mentioned, there could be some wiggle room there in terms of some kind of court intervention or a mass number of people saying that they signed unknowingly or that their signature shouldn't be valid. That would require over 100,000 people do that, and that would just be, it seems unfeasible at this point. So for all intents and purposes, we should expect a recall election by the end of the year. Newsom seemed like he was prepared for that announcement yesterday. He put out a statement talking about how it threatens our values as Californians, talking about fighting the COVID-19 pandemic, helping families, protecting the environment, and that there's just too much at stake at this point to vote against him and to support one of these other candidates. Now, we've been on a roller coaster ride with regards to the pandemic. I know a lot of this recall effort was fueled by dissatisfaction of voters with how the governor was handling this. Obviously, we know what happened at the French Laundry, just a big flub for the governor, all that stuff. There's some other things, obviously, homelessness, taxes, all of this figures into this overall recall effort. But public polling shows that really a lot of people don't really want this to happen. Is that correct? Yeah. So some of the recent polling we saw over the last month showed that I think it was as high as 56 percent of people did not support the recall and were actually opposed to it. A little closer, I think it was under 40 percent were in favor of it. Um, So that all speaks well for Newsom. And, you know, I think you're right that the pandemic has fueled some of this. Prior to this recall effort qualifying, we saw five or six different efforts to recall the governor. It really wasn't until the pandemic kicked in and we saw some of his policies around shutting down businesses and staying home really take effect. And you got some pushback on that. And then there was a a court case where the proponents petitioned for more time to collect signatures because of the pandemic and and inciting the pandemic as an impetus to collecting signatures. So when that was approved, they got more time to do it. And that was really a big moment in terms of the ability of this effort to qualify. Yeah. So, I mean, it seems like obviously just getting this to the ballot is a, a pretty big thing just in general, but it seems like it could still be an uphill battle. And, and as I mentioned, the pandemic really took center stage with everybody on this. And 
what's going to happen by the time this vote actually happens, November, by the end of the year, whenever it is, most kids will be back in school, it seems like. More people will be vaccinated. Right now, California has the lowest case rate in the country. So things are getting better, and it's going to be tough to really keep up this momentum against him on that front right now. And then the other part of it is, you know, a lot of people call it the circus, right? All of these candidates are going to be coming out of nowhere to try to replace him. We've seen some former foes of the governor already there. Caitlyn Jenner has thrown her name in the ring. And, you know, who else will try to do this? Right. And I think those two things you touched on are are huge factors for Newsom. So the first is that the conventional wisdom is the longer the pandemic has kind of been in the rearview mirror by the time we have this election, that all bodes better for Newsom, right? So as you mentioned, if kids are back in school, if we're largely leading some sort of a normal life again, voters are going to be less upset about their current state and their current existence, and they might not want to take that out on their governor, right? They might not be as frustrated. So that is good for him. And then the other factor for all this is unless another challenger viable challenger comes in with the ability to pull not only Democratic voters to their side, but also independents to their side, it becomes a lot easier for Newsom. And so far, we're looking at the former mayor of San Diego, Faulkner, who's come in. He's a Republican. Caitlyn Jenner's coming in. She's also a Republican. There's talk about other candidates and other Democrats maybe being interested. Antonio Villaraigosa is one that there's a lot of talk about. Tom Steyer, a lot of talk about him as well. But unless you really see a Democrat come in with a lot of appeal or a moderate independent voter or a Republican with enough cachet to bring independents and Democrats to their side, it's all looking positive for him at this point. Again, there's a ton of time between now and November, right? So we don't know what could happen. You know, we could have another French laundry situation or (laughs) something like that that would not be good for him. So there's there's a lot of time for things to happen. And and that's important too, right? The the top contenders as it stands right now are all Republicans. So what will happen if a Democrat does get in there? And this all has shades of uh, 2003 when it happened with Gray Davis and they recalled him. That's when we got the governor. That's when Arnold Schwarzenegger won and came in. And there hasn't been a Republican governor since then. So there's a lot of stuff to kind of analyze and go through. And and the amount of money that's going to be put into this thing, it's going to be huge at a time when there's no other big political races in the country. So there's going to be a lot of eyes on it. I mean, there's a lot of stuff to kind of to go through uh, between now and whenever this vote will actually take place. I agree with you. There's a ton of variables between now and October, November when it happens. So I think one of the key things to watch, like you mentioned, is just who these other contenders are and who comes in. Because let's say we have some additional wave of the pandemic, even at that point, even if voters are frustrated and they look down a ballot and they see Newsom as a Democrat and no other real Democrats that they know on the other side, are they going to vote for Republican in California? It's kind of hard to expect, right? Unless you see a Schwarzenegger-esque candidate like you mentioned. Yeah. And the timeline for the state to open back up is June. So businesses should be booming by the time this vote happens. It's going to be a crazy time in California for sure. Taryn Luna, reporter at the LA Times covering Governor Gavin Newsom. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. That's it for this weekend. Be sure to check out the Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. 
Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive has been engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition. Thank you.